This is what I want you to see today and for this entire book of Nehemiah. Great movements of God do not just come out of nowhere. Whether it be the great revival of the 1900s or other great movements of God, great prayer revivals, everything starts with a single person. God burdens a single person to do something for him. And from that person, it spreads to a group. From that group, it spreads outward and can capture the attention of an entire nation. That devotion spreads. Now, with Nehemiah, what we see is twofold. We see something happening with him that will both affect the national identity of Israel, but also it will affect us today in our personal relationship with Jesus Christ. The theme of Nehemiah is revival. Write that in your Bible if you want to. Write it on a piece of paper. Revival. Because in America today, in 2020, facing the election we are about to face, we need as a nation to be revived. Amen. We need to see that God is going to do something in my life, in your life, in his life, in her life, something that will change what is happening around us. So we are in Nehemiah 1, chapter 1, talking about national and personal renewal, revival. And the first thing I want you to see is this. This first movement of God that we experience is this. God always reveals his heart to his people. God reveals his heart to his people. Nehemiah 1.1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, during the month of Chivez, in the 20th year, when I was in the fortress city of Susa. You remember Susa was the capital city of Xerxes? That's where the whole story of Esther happens, is in Susa. So we're still there. Hanani, one of my brothers, arrived with men from Judah, and I questioned them about Jerusalem and the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile. They said to me, the remnant is in the, that is in the province who survived the exile are in great trouble and disgrace. Jerusalem's wall has been broken down, and its gates have been burned down. Wow. When you think about a gate, what does a gate represent? A gate represents security. It represents unity. When a city is walled and its gates are hung, the gates are the most important part. That is how you go in and how you go out. In your life, you have a gate. That gate is in your mind. What you let into your mind stays in your mind. It is a medically proven fact. We do not forget anything. We simply lose the ability to immediately recall certain facts and figures. Now, some people have photographic memories. They can recall instantly anything they've ever read or seen. I am not one of those people. I have the attention span of a Gannat, which is about, yep, that long right there. If you talk to anybody who lives in a house that is not secure, lives in a house that is not stable or solid, talk to anybody who's ever had to live on the street, where your only home is an old mattress and maybe a dumpster. It does something to your ability to think. It does something to your ability to grow as a human being when you don't have security. All of us as parents have tried our dead level best to give our kids a place that is safe, secure, and stable. But here's the thing I want you to think about. Remember I told you that there's a gate in all of us. It's the gate of the mind. It's the gate of the eyes. Whatever we see, we don't forget. Here's the thing. We need to protect our kids from what they see. We need to protect ourselves 
from what we see. See, there's a lot of things that happen in the heart of a person who looks around too much. One thing is envy. Another thing is jealousy. Another thing is lust. And I don't just mean men for women, women for men. I mean guys for cars. Women for more beautiful houses or purse collections or whatever it is that tickles your fancy. You see, when we're always looking at what we don't have and not what we have, it creates a condition in our heart where we are unsettled, we are unhappy, we are unstable. You may have the most wonderful home in the world. You may have the most incredible husband or wife, but if you're always looking at what somebody else has got, you will never be content. And when you're not content, you can't possibly have peace in your life. Amen? You can't have peace. But here's the thing, too. When we as Christians look around, there's a lot of people around us who are in distress. A lot of people who are panicked because they are not Christians. If they are Christians, they're not committed. They don't read the word. They don't pray. They don't look to God in all things. They look to God as a last resort. A lot of people never pray until they're on their deathbed. That's a little too late. Does God hear that prayer? Yeah. If the believer is on their deathbed and he is praying, God hears it. Hezekiah is a good example of that. King Hezekiah. But here's the thing. We should be praying every single day in all situations at all times. Amen. That should be our life. As easily as we breathe in, breathe out, we should be praying to God and receiving his assurance. That's the truth. Consider 1 Corinthians 12, 25 through 26. That there may be no division in the body, that the members may have the same care for one another. If one Christian suffers, all Christians suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Here's the thing that gets me. I know a lot of pastors who are jealous of other pastors with more successful ministries. Now, I've been in churches with big ministries. You know what big ministries mean? Long nights, lots of stress, no time with your family. That's what it means. If you listen to someone like Billy Graham when he was still alive, or Charles Stanley, or any pastor who is out there doing these great things, there's a heavy price to pay for that kind of ministry. But when God gives you that ministry, he gives you the strength for it. But if God has not put you there, don't be envious. Don't be jealous. Here's the thing, too. If your life is together, but someone you know in your family, they don't have it together, don't gloat. Don't feel like, oh, I must be special because I've got everything I need. No. If one Christian is suffering, we are all suffering with them because we're all connected. We're all one body, the body of Christ. So I see churches that are floundering. I see churches that are leaderless, even though they have a pastor or an associate pastor. I see churches that have no direction because their sermons are about how to have a happy life, how to have a happy family, how to be more successful in business. And you think I'm kidding. I'm not kidding. There are churches out there where the whole sermon series is on how to be more successful in business. It's revolting, it's disgusting, and for the record, I just don't understand what that has to do with the kingdom of God. Amen? What that has to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ is, if you have no peace in your life, it's because your eyes are not on the Lord, they're on the world. Just like Peter sinking in the water. Take your eyes off Jesus, put it on the waves, boom, down you go. So our goal is to always be there for other people. Nehemiah hears this. He hears this. Those who survive the exile are in great trouble and disgrace. Let's see what he does about that. The next thing we see is God does reveal his heart to us, but man always responds 
to God's revelation with prayer. Nehemiah 1.4, when I heard these words, I sat down and I wept. I mourned for a number of days, fasting and praying before the God of heaven. You're going to find out by measuring the months that are mentioned here, he wept and cried for four months. Not four days, not four hours. But so badly was his heart broken for the people of God in their condition, he wept for four months. Now that's a man whose heart is tender toward the things of God. Sometimes we get concerned about somebody and we pray for a day. Or we pray for two days. Or if they become hard-hearted, we stop praying altogether. No. When God puts a burden on your heart, he expects you to follow through. So it says he, he prayed and fasted for a number of days before the God of heaven. I said, Yahweh, the God of heaven, the great and awe-inspiring God, who keeps his gracious covenant with those who love him and keep his commands. He acknowledges that God is faithful. Remember, he was born and raised in Persia. He was born and raised under foreign kings. He has never seen Jerusalem. He's never seen the temple. He is a servant in the household of the Persian kings. But he knows from the scriptures, he knows from the word of God that God is faithful in all of the things he does. Look how he goes in verse 6. Let your eyes be open and your ears be attentive to hear your servant's prayer. Let your eyes be open and your ears be attentive to hear your servant's prayer that I now pray to you day and night for your servants, the Israelites. I confess the sins we have committed against you. Both I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted corruptly towards you and have not kept the commands, the statutes, the ordinances you gave to your servant Moses. Please remember what you commanded your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and carefully observe my commands, even though your exiles were banished to the ends of the earth, I will gather you from there and bring you to the place where I chose to have my name dwell. He chose Jerusalem, the temple of Solomon. He chose it to be the place where his name would remain, where his people would be gathered. He told Jeremiah, you will go into captivity for 70 years, but at the end, I'm going to start to bring you home. This is 70 years after Zerubbabel went. This is 70 years after they began to return home. And even though this Nehemiah has never seen the great temple, he still holds to God's word in all things. He says this, They are your servants and your people. You redeem them by your great power and strong hand. Please, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to that of your servants who delight to revere your name. Give your servant success today and have compassion on him in the presence of this man. At that time, I was the king's cupbearer. So he's praying that when he goes to the king, just as Esther prayed when she went to her king, that that king would have compassion and would listen. The king's cupbearer was an honored position. It was a position of trust. You see, the cupbearer was the perfect person to poison the king. He was the perfect person to be sure that the king would be slipped a drug or a poison that would kill him. So the king had to have absolute trust in the cupbearer, in that one who was charged with his own life. 
So somehow, Nehemiah has risen by the work of God to a place where he is right beside the king on a day-to-day basis. He knows the king intimately, and the king knows him. You realize you are like a cupbearer. You bear the Holy Spirit in your flesh. You bear the word of God in your person. You have that honored, revered position, just like Nehemiah. You have that position, that that closeness to the king. Imagine what will happen when someone with that kind of closeness makes a request of the king of all things. That's what we're going to be seeing today. You see, when we pray, when we are moved by God with a burden for other people, other Christians, when we are moved like that, then our next motion is to pray, to pray about it, put it before God. Now, just because the burden comes today doesn't mean your action comes today. You have to be available in the moment, but the burden that begins today may gestate over a week or a month, four months here, he prayed. But it might take a year or two years before you come to the place where you're able to fulfill that burden that God puts on your soul. Is it a burden for children? God will give you a chance and a time and a place to do that ministry. Maybe that burden is for other people your age or in your same situation. Maybe you are in a unique situation where you can do ministry nobody else can do. Touch people nobody else can do. I've known guys who were motorcycle riders. They were almost one percenters. And if you know what a one percenter is, that's hardcore. That's hardcore biker. That's a lifestyle. It's not just what you ride. It's who you are as a person. And those people have been one to faith in Christ. And they have opened motorcycle ministries because they are the only ones that can reach that deep core of motorcycle rider where it's not just what you ride. It's who you are as a person. You are uniquely built by God for a time and a place to do this work. Nehemiah has just been serving the king, but now he hears something that burdens his heart and he weeps about it for four months. Have you ever been touched by what you see around you so much that it burdens you and bothers you? I have not been this burdened about the church in a long time where my belief is that we are coming to a place, a critical time, where the church needs to shine. And it's not something I can escape. I mean, I will sit at home sometimes when it's just me and I'm just listening to music, and the weight on my heart is horrible. I mean, I feel this pain for what's happening in the world around me, not just the violence and the unrest. I know that our time is short. And I know that all those people out there screaming, yelling, howling, have no idea that the God of heaven is about to come back and take his people. And when that happens, such horror will come upon the earth as has never been seen. This has been called an unprecedented time, and they're not wrong. We are so close to the return of Jesus Christ. Our only question is, Lord, what do I do in the time I have left? So he looks at it. He is the king's cupbearer. He remembers these promises from the past. He remembers how it was. Consider Deuteronomy 4, 27 through 29. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in numbers among the nations, where Yahweh will drive you. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone and work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. 
But from that place, you will seek Yahweh your God and you will find him. If you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. See, here's the thing. Here's the reason why people don't find any power or strength in the Christian life. Because they do it half-heartedly. They want a God who will give them everything and ask nothing. They want a God who just wants you to show up on Sunday, punch a time clock, go home, and forget about it till the next week comes around. A lot of people, and this is not just Christianity, this is Islam, this is Judaism, this is all of these world religions. They want their religion, their faith, to be a small part of their life. But for the Christian, Christ is our life. He is the totality of everything that we do and are and think and be. See, as I get older, a lot of things begin to pass by the wayside. A lot of those old desires of the past for this or for that or gathering this or collecting that, all that's gone. What's left now is a desire, a passion to do something for Jesus Christ in these last days. See, when you seek him with your whole heart, your entire soul is bent on a relationship with Jesus Christ. Then you will find him even from that place where you are scattered around the world. So God reveals his heart to us. Then man, when he sees that heart, he responds with prayer. The next thing we see is in Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah chapter 2. After we pray, after prayer, man and woman must take action. Prayer is not prayer until it does something. Prayer isn't just a thing in and of itself. Prayer motivates us to go forward. See, prayer doesn't change God. God uses prayer to change us. There's the reality of biblical Christianity. You don't pray to change God. God's got a plan. God has you pray so that you will be changed into the person he can use. Those four months of weeping are about to pay off. Nehemiah 2.1. During the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was set before him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had never been sad in his presence, so the king said to me, Why are you sad when you aren't sick? This is nothing but depression. See, the king was smart. Artaxerxes could discern between a man who had a stomach ache and a man who had an ache in his soul. That's important. The king knew the difference between someone who was physically sick and someone who was spiritually or emotionally sick. I was overwhelmed with fear. It was against court policy to ever appear before the king in a depressed or sad state. No one in the king's presence was ever allowed to be sad or despondent because the king should be enough to keep you happy. The king's presence should be enough to fill you with joy. That was the thinking in the Persian Empire. But Nehemiah is so struck by what's happening, he can't hide it. And the king has known this man for years and knows when there's something wrong. He says this, I was overwhelmed with fear and I replied to the king, may the king live forever. Why should I not be sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Here we see the wisdom of King Artaxerxes again. Then the king asked me, 
What is your request? Interestingly, that is exactly what God asks us. Whenever we come in prayer, whenever we come before God, even when we come before God with praise, may the king live forever, whenever we come into God's presence, his thing is, what do you desire? What do you desire? You know, he came to Solomon. He said, Solomon, you, you've been so faithful. Ask for anything and I'll give it to you. Solomon said, hmm, let me think about that, God. Give me the wisdom to rule your people. Give me the wisdom to be a good king. And God said, you know what? I'm impressed. You didn't ask for gold or silver or power or women or, or nations to be conquered by you. You asked for the very thing that was most needful, wisdom to rule my people. Not because you've asked for that, God said to Solomon, I will give you everything else too. Hmm, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. What? Then everything else that you need in life will be added to you because your attention is on the kingdom of God, not on the kingdom of me, what I can acquire. Now, I will admit, I am a person with certain desires. And sometimes my wife catches me on, on the internet and I'm looking at musical instruments. Now, here's the thing I don't have many hobbies, but my hobbies are extraordinarily expensive. And I've been looking at uh, a hurdy gurdy, which is a 1,000 year old instrument, originally probably Persian. It was once so big it was run by two men. If you listen to any Celtic music, if you listen to any Germanic folk type music, you will hear the hurdy-gurdy. It's about this long, it's about the size of a guitar, but there's a crank at the end. As you crank it, it turns a wooden wheel. You rosin up the wheel and there's between four and six and up to 21 strings attached to this thing. And as the wheel turns, it turns on these drone strings and it makes a humming sound like a bagpipe. And then by using a keyboard on the side, you can change the tone and the pitch of the melody strings. And it's a phenomenal instrument. I actually built a model of one that actually works. I built this little model, you turn the crank, and it's not very good, it's a model. But my thing is, it's so cool. It's also around $3,000. And I'm like, I ain't got $3,000 to throw into this thing. Although it sounds really cool in church. But, when I look at that, I can appreciate it, but you know what, at the same time, eh, you gotta push it aside for the things that are more needful. So I know what it is to want all of these things, but that cannot be the focus of your life. Because guess what, when they put you in a coffin someday, they're not putting the hurdy-gurdy with you. It's gonna go to somebody else. It's gonna get passed along. So for right now, I think I'm just gonna focus on where I need to be. So he said this, from the, okay, so we're in Nehemiah 2.1, and he said this, why are you sad? And then he said, what do you want? What is your request? So we're caught up now. He says, so I prayed to the God of heaven in that moment and answered the king. He said, Lord, give me the right words. And I answered the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor with you, send me to Judah and to the city where my ancestors are buried so that I may rebuild it. Wow, that is a huge request. Remember, the, the king of Persia hasn't had to deal 
with Jerusalem in a long time. He's got people over there that are administering things and they send back money every year and that's as much as he knows or cares about a small city on the other end of his empire. He's got other things to worry about. So he asked them something very wise. Now it's interesting because if you're Artaxerxes, you have to think back to your grandfather, Darius. Ezra 6, 11 through 12. And this is what was said by Darius. Also, I make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, the edict to rebuild Jerusalem, a beam shall be pulled out of his house and he shall be impaled on it and his house shall be made a dunghill. May the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who shall put out a hand to alter this edict or to destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, make a decree. Let it be done with all diligence. Artaxerxes has to be careful. Here his cupbearer, the man he trusts more than just about anybody else, has said, I want to go home and rebuild the walls of my ancestors' city. Where is that? Jerusalem. What's in Jerusalem? The temple to the God of the Jews, to Yahweh. Now he knows the teachings of Persian history. He knows that Darius, his grandfather, has said this, that no man shall lift a hand against this city or against its temple. So he has to weigh that carefully in his consideration. Even though he doesn't believe in the God of the Jews, it's not part of his day-to-day -day life, he's still very cautious. So when he prayed, when Nehemiah prayed to God, God gave him exactly the right words. And that's how it is with us. If we pray and we seek it and we are willing to take action immediately, not next year or not five years from now or not when I have time, I know a lot of people who say they will serve God when they have time. Let me ask you a question, those of you who are my age and older. Have you ever had more time in your life than you have right now? No. You never have time. As soon as you retire, what's the first thing that happens? The magical honeydew list appears on the refrigerator. And you find out that in retirement, you work more hours than you did when you were working. I have confirmed this with men my age, and they go, it's true. As soon as you retire, you have less time than you had when you were working. And you thought when you were working, you had no time? No. When you retire, you have no time at all for anything because the honeydew list grows. And it's the truth. There is no better time to serve God than right now. Now is the only time you have to serve him. And that is the truth. So we say that God reveals his heart that man responds with prayer, and that after praying, man takes action. He has prayed, God has given him some instruction, he moves forward. Let's see how we wrap this up, because divine action requires planning. You don't just rush into the God service. When God puts a burden there, and you pray about it, and you know what that is that you have to do, then you make preparation to do it. See, a lot of people have a plan in their head, but they don't do anything about it until later. And if you don't put that plan into effect, things happen. Nehemiah 2, 6. The king with the queen seated beside him asked me, how long will your journey take and when will you return? So I gave him a definite time. There it is. I gave him a definite time and it pleased the king to send me. You see, the very fact 
that Nehemiah knew how long it would take to travel from Susa to Jerusalem, how long it would take to organize the people to rebuild the walls, to repair the gates, to hang the gates. Now, guys, you've hung gates before. I hung a gate on my first white picket fence around my first house. Not too big a task, right? Not too big a task unless your gates are 40 feet high. Then it's a little more complicated to hang a 40-foot high gate. And when those gates are ironclad and super thick to withstand you know, an assault by an enemy force. These gates were nothing to mess with. They took a long time to build and a long time to hang properly. Because y'all know what happens when you hang a gate crooked. Never closes, never shuts, won't stay shut. It's a bad thing when you hang a gate the wrong way. So Nehemiah had thought this through. He had put time and effort into putting this plan together. Now look what it says here. So I gave him a definite time and it pleased the king to send me. I also said to the king, if it pleases the king, let me have letters written to the governors of the region west of the Euphrates River so that they will grant me safe passage until I reach Judah. And let me have a letter written to Aspha, keeper of the king's forest, so that he will give me timber to rebuild the gates of the temple's fortress, the city wall, and the home where I will live. He knew something too. You build a home in a place, you are invested in it. So he's going to build that home, and that shows he is committed to that place. If he just went and did some repairs and left, went back to Susa, people may not be too happy. But if you build a house there, it means you're going to be there, you're going to come back. So they definitely know that you're committed to that place. The king granted my request, and I was graciously strengthened by my God. That's so important. I was graciously strengthened by my God. On his own, Nehemiah could not do this. On your own, you don't have the strength or wisdom or power to serve God. But when you follow God's movement, he will strengthen you to do it. He will give you power you never knew you had. I went to the governors of their region west of the Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king also sent officers of the infantry and cavalry with me. Why? In those days when you didn't like somebody, you would look for every opportunity to assassinate them. Someone that close to the king is somebody you want to bump off. Because if he dies on the way out of the city, the king will have to choose someone new to step into that place. And usually they have somebody in mind to put there because that's someone that they can use in a political type of way. So it said this, he sent the officers of the infantry and cavalry with me to protect him. When Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite official, heard that someone had come to seek the well-being of the Israelites, they were greatly displeased. Why? Because they had profited from the weakness of the Jews. They had profited from the broken walls. They had profited from the burned gates. They were able to do things, plunder things, rob, steal, subjugate. Because these people knew what a strong Jerusalem would represent. They remembered the Jerusalem that Nebuchadnezzar had taken. They remembered that the Jews were strong people and their God was not to be played with. So if they could keep the city broken, they could keep control of them. But with a unified city, rebuilt, restrengthened, they would lose all of their power. Make no mistake, whenever you do something for God, 
God's enemies will not like you. They will fight you. They will resent you. They will speak against you. They will try to dissuade you. And here's the thing. Jerusalem's walls were torn down. I tell you that this, in America today, the walls of the church are torn down. They have been torn down by people who said, do we really have to believe this? Do we really have to believe that? Do we really have to hold to this? Yes, we do. But they have torn pieces out of the wall and weakened the church to the place where it is today. I tell you, the church needs to be rebuilt on the teachings of Jesus Christ, on the teachings of the Old and New Testament. We need to let the Bible be the Bible and not second guess it. If we want to keep the church safe, a sanctuary, we need to rebuild the walls of the church by rebuilding the teachings of the church. And that means that there will be people who will call themselves our friends, call themselves our brothers, who will try to dissuade us. Oh, don't be so hardcore. Don't be so literal. Be a little more flexible. There's a wideness in God's mercy. People, that is not a scripture. That's a song. And there is a wideness in God's mercy for his people not for the whole bloody world. God hears the prayers of his people. So we need to teach the world the truth so that they too can come into that sanctuary and be saved. Okay, we've begun our journey in Nehemiah. We've begun our journey by seeing that God has given us a burden. And our burden is our community, our friends, our family, our world, especially in this day and age. As we go forward, I want you to see how the rebuilding of a city, how the strengthening of a people strengthens everyone around them and everyone they touch. Because that will be about what we do after we finish this book and as we read through it. Amen? Let's pray.